Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Experiential Table. I'm Cynthia Samanian, your host and founder of Hidden Rhythm. I help food businesses of all sizes create engaging experiences, both online and offline. From virtual cooking classes to branded pop-ups, I love bringing people together over food. Now, speaking of pop-ups, I cannot introduce today's guest without sharing how we first met. Melissa Smith is the founder of Enotrius Elite Sommelier Services. Back when I was prepping for my very first pop-up dinner, I had fortunately discovered Melissa. I was looking for wine pairings to go with our menu and gave her a call. Not only did she choose wines at an incredible value, she even showed up to the pop-up and poured for our guests. It was so generous of her and really speaks to her passion for wine and supporting other women in food. In this episode, Melissa is going to share how she's shifted her services business online during COVID, mainly through offering virtual wine tastings. So pour yourself a glass of rosé or bubbly and enjoy this interview with Melissa. Hey there, Melissa. It's so good to be chatting with you on the show today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be chatting with you too. Awesome. Well, to get started, let me give our listeners a quick bio about you. Melissa Smith is a chef and certified sommelier and the founder of Enotrius Elite Sommelier Services. That's a mouthful. (laughs) Her company manages wine collections and conducts private and corporate wine, spirits, and sake seminars, which have been converted to virtual events during COVID. All right, Melissa. So before we dive into all the things you're doing right now online, I'd love to learn more about how you got into food and wine. Can you share more about your background with us? Absolutely. So when I was 12, I started working at a bagel bakery in San Jose with my now stepmom and was obviously going to school full time. So did that before and after school, sometimes on weekends. And then by the time I was in high school, I started managing a high-end catering company in Fremont while I was going to high school full-time. So while every other popular kid I went to school with senior year was planning on going to Cancun for senior break, I had signed up for a week-long culinary class at the Culinary Institute of America in Napa Valley. So I did that week. By the end of the week, I had three job offers to stay in the building. And I accepted the one as the pastry chef and the wine spectator Greystone restaurant. So I was the one working on the floor in an open kitchen and was just (laughs) probably way out of my element. Wait, were you even allowed to pour wine at that age? (laughs) How old were you? (laughs) I was only 18. But yeah, I was a pastry chef. So wine kind of didn't come into things. Okay. But on my days off, I would go wine tasting and I never got carded. So I would spend a ton of time in tasting rooms trying to really understand wine, not just get buzzed. That's what the bars were for. But did that, ended up staging at the French Laundry and working at Terra under Chef Hirosone. And again, you know, kind of wine tasting on the DL on my off time and then decided to go to CIA in New York. And they tried to talk me out of it, but I went anyway. And I had such a phenomenal wine education there that it was kind of always in the back of my mind to integrate that with my career. So when it was all said and done, I basically spent 15 years as a chef 
and about halfway through decided I want to get paid to drink for a living. So I went through the quartermaster sommeliers for my introduction and then got a job at KNL Wine Merchants, was working front of the house jobs. And while I was at KNL, I became the head sommelier for the company and also started my company Anotrius. And I would get phone calls to inventory people's wine collections and do these private events. So I was doing these regularly and then decided to take Anotrius full time. And that was just over six years ago. Wow. I'm still stuck on this idea that you were basically working in some of the world's best restaurants before you were probably 21. That's unbelievable. Had you always been interested in food? Like, were you cooking at home as a kid, as a teenager? Yeah, as a teenager, I was cooking at home. I was the one reading Gourmet when the other girls were reading Teen and Cosmo. And I love food. I love travel. My grandparents had a really cool garden growing up in Fremont. So I just had these really awesome sensory experiences, picking fresh tangerines and fresh raspberries and fresh kumquats and conquered grapes and these things. And I think that's really what kind of started my love of food and ingredients. And that's you know transferred into wine now. Yeah. So you founded your business. How many years ago, you said? It was about six years ago that I officially launched Anotrius. Okay. And I've known you for several years now, but I've also seen what you've shared on social media. And it's really cool what you do. I mean, I'm sure most people on the outside would assume you have a cool job because you get to work in wine. But when you talk about managing wine collections, can you explain that a bit more? Because I've seen some of it on social media, but it's pretty cool, at least from the outside looking in. Oh, thank you. I love it. I super nerd out. And I nerd out to the extent that I have the only legal presentation on wine collecting and the valuation of wine collections. And it's a California state bar certified. It's certified in nine other states. Thank you, COVID. And attorneys are required to do a set amount of continuing education courses every one to two years. So my course on wine collecting and evaluation of wine collections counts towards their credits if they take it. So what that means is I go into people's homes or if they have offsite wine storage and I organize inventory and then assign valuations for insurance and legal purposes. A lot of what this does, most people don't know that their wine collection isn't covered by home insurance, which is one of those things I want to shout out from the rooftops because if anything happens, fire, flood, PG&E goes out for a number of days, all of these things, you can lose your entire wine collection. And home insurance will only cover like $2,000 of it, if that. So you do need separate insurance. And then the other legal aspect is if you inherit a wine collection or you're going through divorce or something like that, you need it properly appraised for evaluation so that you can determine what to do with those assets. And the other part of what I do for just wine enthusiasts that are collectors is I help to source wines. I help them broker some of their wines if their tastes have changed and things like that. That's amazing. And you say $2,000. I'm thinking about my wine collection. I think it would cover it. (laughs) I'm not quite there yet. But I have seen, like I said, just on Instagram, the photos of these collections that you're working with. And it's amazing. I mean, these are real wine connoisseurs, or at least they just buy a lot of wine and have a lot of space for it. So before COVID, let's talk about that. So you have the side of your business where you help manage these wine collections, but then you also have an events arm to your business. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So help us understand what are some of the events that you do, whether it's private, corporate? So 
I do a number of different things. And one to like tie into the legal presentations is last year I started doing my presentation on wine collecting and the valuation of wine collections at country clubs around the Bay Area because this is where I'll find my demographic. So there's that. And then what I've been doing over the last several years, but definitely this last year, is I will partner with wineries to feature their wines. And either I'll do an hour-long seminar on wine collecting and then what goes into it that also will count as a continuing education credit for anyone that takes it, but it also has value for wine collectors. And then we'll do an hour-long tasting to go with the overall presentation seminar. I've done for tech companies. My most popular one with the tech companies is going to be Wines of Silicon Valley, where it's basically wines from Santa Cruz Mountains. It goes in to show you, you know, when you're flying into company headquarters in the Bay Area, you're actually flying over historic wineries for California and for the US in general. I do Pinot Noir from around the world is another one that's really popular. So we'll do a sparkling Pinot Noir. We'll do a Pinot Noir Blanc. We'll do Pinot Noir from Europe and California or Oregon, New Zealand, and just give you this kind of full travel experience and education through one of the most food-friendly wines. And then my last one I'll bring up is one that I taught at Stanford called How to Be a Wine Baller on a Student Budget. And I did this for the business school arm of Stanford. And it was like seeing all of these young tech entrepreneurs come into restaurants and whoever is trying to swoon them would hand them the wine book. And you know, they would just kind of look at it dumbfounded. So I wanted to go in and teach these kids, these are how you pick a wine from a wine list. This is how you say the names. At the time, I developed the first ever iPhone app for wine pronunciation and get bottles into their hands that were going to cost $15 or less so that they could start to learn to appreciate wine and feel more confident when they're being brought out to these business lunches and dinners. I love that. You've done such a good job of figuring out who your target audience is and who you're really going after. I mean, each of the experiences you just described are so specific. And I'm just thinking about my business school classmates. We needed your training out in Boston. That class is so relevant. And you're right. Like you're thinking about where your audience is, where are they finding themselves in these awkward situations? And I know for me, whenever I would look at a wine list, it was don't get the cheapest, don't get the most expensive, get the second from the bottom. Right. That's what I've been told, but that's probably not right either. So it seems really valuable that you've been able to make this wine education accessible. And like I said, really go after an audience who needs it. Thank you. Okay. So pre-COVID days, we've covered that. I wish I didn't ask what you taught because now I want to take all of those classes, especially the Pinot Noir one. But now we are currently recording this in November 2020 and we still have COVID looming over us. So you have done a pretty great pivot in the online space. And I would love for you to tell us more about what that is. And so we can dive into that. Yeah. So when COVID first started, I'm like, how am I going to do this? What's going to happen? So many people want me to start a YouTube channel. But then when I was running the numbers, it just it didn't make any sense, especially if I'm the one that's buying the wine to do these videos on, you know, that adds up very, very quickly. So I forget the first client that approached me to do it. And now I've had several. 
but I wanted to figure out like, how do I still provide this service? So I went and listened to all the podcasts and everything else I could learn online about doing virtual events and found Zoom, signed up for like the most high-end subscription you could do so we could do meetings and webinars. And it took a lot of trial and error because when I was doing the webinars for the legal presentations, I wasn't getting that interaction that I'm used to. And of course, you know, I've gotten more comfortable with talking just into my computer, but I really wanted that interaction. That's a lot of what I love about doing these events and working in hospitality in general is seeing people's reactions and answering questions on the fly and things like that. So I pivoted from doing the webinars where there isn't that interaction to doing meetings, but then having to figure out how to get them to pay and then send the links and things like that. So I've done that and that was going great. And when I'm doing the legal presentations, I'm required to have a actual presentation that they can look at. So I had that deck ready, which was awesome. And then I started doing ones for these virtual events. So normally when I'm doing in-person ones, I might bring a map and labels and show where all the wines are coming from. But now I spend a lot of time preparing decks for each different topic that I cover. So the one that I just did on Wines of Silicon Valley, I had all of the vendors information out there. I had pictures of the vineyards. I had the label from the bottle on there. Sometimes I would have the vineyard dog. And then just be able to taste along with them, see the reactions, hear what their thoughts are, and then also give them the visuals that they need to kind of put them in the setting. I think that's what I really love the most about these virtual wine tastings and cooking classes and things like that. It's like we can't leave our houses right now. So to be able to travel through food and wine, I think is really important. So instead of just having a PowerPoint with listed information, I really wanted to have visuals that went along with it as well. That definitely makes sense. And what about the actual wine itself? So are you sending them links to go buy it? Or how do they get the wines in front of them that you want to walk them through? That's a great question. It's been a totally steep learning curve because it's not legal to ship wine to every state. And sometimes wineries will have different permits than retailers. So sometimes wineries can ship into all the different states that the retailers can't. So it makes more sense to partner with a winery. But I actually partnered with a retailer, very small retailer in California that's handling all of that for me. So what I do is I pull in all of my connections in the wine industry to source the wines for each topic. And then I have this retailer bring them in exclusively for me. And then they package them up and ship them. But I also, whenever possible, I try to hand deliver them and give that extra touch. So I have branding that I put on the wine packaging, you know, knock on the doors and just hand deliver the wines to them. The biggest thing, and this is something that nobody really expects because when I was doing these in person, one bottle of wine I can serve. 12 people tastes of. So I only need six bottles of wine for an entire event based on any one theme. And because of COVID, we have to ship full bottles to everybody. So each person in each experience is receiving anywhere from three to six, 700 milliliter bottles. Whoa. (laughs) I did not even think about that. Oh my goodness. You're right. 
there's some companies that have repackaged wine into smaller containers. Some of them have done it legally, other ones haven't. And I try to be as above board as possible. So for me, this is the only way that I can do it because I don't have a wine retailer's license. So using a third party to get the wine to the guests. But what I try to tell people now is, you know, you need some type of wine preservation system in your home. I don't want people to feel like they're going to waste six bottles of wine or four bottles of wine. I don't want them to feel forced to finish the wines either. So there's a combination of tools that I recommend my clients get to preserve the wines. And then I also, because I was a chef, I take it a step further and provide recipes for what to do with leftover wine. So minimal waste, ideally, and maximum potential to at least extend the life of these open bottles. That's so smart. Yeah. In my head, I was thinking about these tastings and I didn't even think about the fact that you're right. You could split a bottle four ways or even more, but you can't necessarily do that at home and you would still want them to taste a range of wines. So you can't skimp there either with the variety. Exactly. And I also like that you worked with a partner and I mean, you kind of had to just given the whole legalities around selling wine. But for people listening who maybe aren't in wine and are looking to do something else in the food space and have some sort of physical product associated with the virtual experience, the logistics around that are really complicated. And I think people tend to underestimate it. They just think, oh yeah, you buy the thing, you box it up and you ship it, or in your case, hand deliver it. But there's a lot of complexity involved. And it's usually never as simple as what it seems like in the beginning. And I'm sure even you having a third party have run into some logistical hiccups and issues here and there. Oh, yeah. And this is one of the reasons your podcast is such a godsend. You had interviewed a woman that has the macaroon business. I was just going to say, Lindsay. Yeah. Lindsay Kinder of Food La Lage. Her episode is awesome. Totally awesome. So when I tell people like, hey, you have to commit to sending your entire team four bottles each, and they're like, oh my God, that's so much money. Or if they want to get their team members in Singapore, London, New York, and California on the same Zoom, I'm like, I can't do this, but this amazing woman from Food La La can do macaroons and ship you everything, no problem. You don't have to get people drunk at 2 in the morning in California and people drunk at 9 in the evening in Singapore to enjoy a team building event. So I'm thrilled to know that her services are out there when mine can't fit their needs. Yeah. And it's so funny. When she would teach in San Francisco, she did wine pairings with her macarons. So she had a savory macaron class and she would do wine pairings with it. And she worked with a local wine retailer that you probably know. But I thought that was so interesting. And then now you're talking about her. So I'm sure there will be a way to give back the love once things are back to in-person events. Absolutely. So... One of the things that I'm curious about is how people have discovered your virtual wine tastings. Have you found that it's clients you've had in the past? Or has this actually opened up potential for new business, people who maybe hadn't worked with you before? Well, I've gotten a little bit creative. When I got the SBA loan at the beginning, I have been a bootstrap company since the beginning with no overhead, really. So I took the SBA loan and I invested in the top tier Wix email platform, I went through and just called all of my emails, which was pretty extensive. 
and put those all in. And then I'm terrible at staying on top of newsletters, but I sent one out today that's already gotten great reception. So that included anyone and everyone in the wine industry. There's this awesome company called Shoeboxed, and you send them a bag of all of your business cards, and then they enter everything into a spreadsheet for you. So I had thousands of business cards that I've collected over the years, and they just send me back the spreadsheet. And so I have all of that to send emails to. And then I started doing things like next door and my little historic neighborhood has a Facebook group. So I started virtual wine tasting with them, also supporting a local female winemaker using her wines for the first class. And then Instagram, Facebook, and then just kind of reaching out to other friends in the wine industry. And then they start reaching out to me to want to partner because they saw you know the type of clients that I have and that I'm getting in front of such a niche demographic with the family law and trust and states attorneys that you know we had some overlap with the really high-end clients. So those partnerships are still in the works. People that see that I'm a chef, I, I kind of put that on the back burner professionally for a long time because I'd be asked to do these wine seminars. And then when they found out I was a chef, they're like, can you cater it too? And I'm like, no, <laughs> I can't. That's way too much work. So now that I'm like bumping up my COVID resume and going back to some private chef work and things like that, I think that people that have followed me online forever but didn't know that side of me have started to see the value that I can bring to their brand. So even this morning, I was having a conference call with the winery where we're going to do an overlap of pairing their wines with holiday menus. So I'm going to not only be kind of emceeing this wine tasting experience, I'm also going to be providing recipes and different ideas for enjoying wine through the holidays with food. You can't escape that chef background of yours. <laughs> I know. Keeps coming up. It's so funny with the whole catering thing. It's work that is always there, but I think people don't understand how exhausting it is until they've done it before. Exactly. You're like, no, thanks. I will not cater your massive dinner party and do all of the wine. It's a little much to remote space. Yeah. Well, and it's good to hear that you are investing in your email list. That is something that I preach often to my members of Cooking Class Business School, but also on this podcast because I've seen how it's worked for me. And it can be challenging if you haven't gotten those emails into a central email service provider. And it's so funny that you mentioned Shoebox because I actually used them a few years ago when I was super behind on my accounting and I had just tons of receipts from like Whole Foods and all these places that I was sourcing groceries for, for different events and food styling shoots and all of that stuff. And I remember looking at that pile being like, oh my gosh, how am I going to put this in? And I used Shoebox and it was great because you just have that envelope that they send you, right? And then you throw it in the envelope and magically it ends up on your computer. But I did not know that they do business cards. That's so smart. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I used them so many years ago and then was like, when I'm cleaning everything, just found bags and bags of business cards and saw if they were still in business and they are. So a week or two later, just had everything in one central location. Great. They are not a sponsor of this podcast episode, but they should be. They should be at this point because we've given them quite a few minutes of airtime. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is something that, I mean, it's been a tough year with COVID, with a lot of other things happening, but being in Northern California and especially with you being in the wine industry and 
really knowing people as friends, I'm sure at this point, I can't help but ask you about the impact of the last few years, especially this last year with the wildfires that have just been devastating wineries and winemakers all over, not only Northern California, but Oregon as well. So I would love to kind of pick your brain and ask you for advice, whether we're cooking at home or eating out, what are some of the ways that we as consumers can really support these wineries that are struggling? And even as professionals in the culinary and event space, how do you recommend we go about providing support to help them recover? That's such an awesome question. Yeah, it's been devastating for our entire industry in hospitality, but you know, especially the wineries dealing with the fires and immigration issues and everything else that goes along the tariffs. All of that has had such a huge impact on our industry. So although in my wine collecting seminar, we talk about joining wine clubs and how they're not the best investment for investing in wine and making money in the long term, it is the absolute best way to support a winery or a retailer is by joining their wine club. So I tell people, you know, avoid the big box stores, avoid the grocery stores, go to your local retailers, talk to them, see which wines they're excited about. Also, you know, talk to people like me, talk to sommeliers and see who we're excited about because oftentimes we're in the really sweet zone of, you know, $20 to $50 bottles versus the $2,000 bottles that we've all tasted. And as a sommelier, we're going to know where the values are. We're going to know how the grapes are grown, how the wines are made, making sure that you're getting like the best quality product. So definitely do what you can to support these smaller wineries, reach out and see which ones have been devastated and how, and how can you support them? Find wines that you like or wineries that you like and really just do what you can to get on their wine list. Or like I said, find a local retailer, join their monthly wine club or quarterly wine club, things like that. And just see what they're offering. Who doesn't need extra wine in their house right now? (laughs) Yeah. And I love the idea of being able to try new wines. And like you said, having an expert curate it for you, someone who's passionate and excited and really wants you to try this bottle of wine. I'll take that any day over my standard go-to that I get every single time at the grocery store because I know what it tastes like. That gets boring after a while. And most of those wines, honestly, at the grocery store are made with a lot of additives and they're more, you know, these bulk wines. And once you learn more about wine, you kind of realize, oh, they don't wash grapes before they make wine. So any chemicals or fertilizers that are sprayed on the grapes are in the bottle with you. So you really want to make sure to like be sourcing organic and sustainable and even biodynamic wines and really going after those so that you're conscious of what you're putting in your body. Okay. Now that I have you on here, I'm like, wait a minute, I have a psalm on this podcast with me. I need to ask all my wine questions. I'm going to only ask you one. My personal experience is that when I go to France, I don't get any hangovers. I only get hangovers when I drink wine in the US. Is there a reason behind that? <laughs> I love that. I swear it's one of like the top questions I get asked in my events. So, you know, UC Davis has been a blessing and a curse. They've helped the agricultural industry infinitely, but they've also come up with a million different things that can be added to 
vineyards and to wine. So I think it's legal to add like up to 70 different additives to wine. And everybody assumes that they're allergic to sulfites because that's the only thing that's required to be listed on a US label. So when they get a migraine or they get a hangover, they assume, oh, I'm allergic to sulfites. And it's probably not sulfites. There's more sulfites in a glass of frozen orange juice than there is in like a case of wine. So my theory, and this is just a theory, I'm not a scientist, is that we've been putting chemicals on vineyards since the 1970s. And those are concentrated in the soil. That combined with all of the stuff that they add to wines, you know, from coloring to liquid tannins to flavor ingredients. Sugar is a common one, even in Europe, to help get the alcohol level up to a certain amount. It ferments out dry. Acids, a lot of these other things. I'm not a winemaker, so I don't know the entire list of things that they add. But I do know that it's enough that it's kind of launched this natural wine revolution, which I'm not a part of. But I really appreciate the sentiment. So that and American wines tend to be a lot higher in alcohol. And as American, we don't typically enjoy wine with food. We're more likely to get an out burger on the way home from work and then eat that in the car. And when we get home, open up a bottle of Cabernet. And it's like, we're not having the two of those together versus Europe. You know, you're sipping a low alcohol wine, you're having a bite of food and, you know, that can progress through multiple bottles of wine. It's a different lifestyle. And I wish that we were better at integrating wine into our lives that much more. You raise a really good point about the food. So my husband is French American. Half of his family still lives in France. And we went there for the holidays last year and we would have the most insane meals, like multiple courses, sitting down at a huge table together. But we were drinking so much wine and champagne and I never felt buzzed. But if I think about how much cheese I ate, like how much food I had had that whole time, it makes sense. And you're right. Here we just snack on some cheese and then have three glasses of wine and wonder why we feel like crap the next day. Exactly. Makes sense. All right. Well, this was so awesome to chat with you, Melissa. I do have one question before I let you go. And it's a question I ask everyone who is on the show. And what I want to know from you is, what's the single most important element of an incredible experience? I think being passionate about what you're teaching and really being able to convey that, getting excited about who the producer is or who grew the fruit and vegetables or you know how the things are made. I think that passion and education and experience and being able to tell firsthand stories of why you're so excited about that stuff really makes a huge difference to your guests. Passion, education, and experience. I feel like those three words sum you up. I mean, you have the expert background in both food and wine, but you also are just, it's clear in working with you that you love what you do. And you're always trying to, I think, find more ways to spread the knowledge that you have and have fun doing it. It was so good to have you on the show, Melissa. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective on all things wine and the way that COVID has really impacted you in the industry. Now, if our listeners want to book a virtual wine tasting with you, maybe for their family, friends, or a team building event, where's the best place for them to find you? I would say my website, enotrius.com. And I'll just spell that really quick for people. It's E-N-O 
T-R-I-A-S.com. Perfect. And we will include links to your site as well as your Instagram in our show notes. So if you're listening and you didn't jot that down, no worries. You can find it where you are listening to this podcast as well as on theexperientialtable.com. Now, if this conversation has sparked some new ideas or questions you have about virtual wine tastings, head on over to our private Facebook group to chat with other culinary pros, food and beverage business owners, and more. Not to mention, Melissa is also a member of the group. And one more thing, I want to give a quick shout out to Lashel2 for leaving this amazing review of our show on Apple Podcasts. I love this podcast. The conversations are informative and fun. It feels like a conversation between friends sharing their real life experiences. I find that I take away something new in every episode. Worth listening, especially if you have a business, thinking about starting a business, or like hearing people's real life stories. Well, thank you so much for that review, Lashel2. Listeners, if you have some kind words to share about this show, then do us a huge favor and subscribe, rate, and review where you're listening to this podcast. It really helps us get our interviews into more ears of people like you. Thanks again for tuning in. And until next week, get excited to get experiential. 